the biggest stories from the pages of the London Free Press and LFPress.com. This is the London Free Press Podcast with your host, Lindsay Barnett. Welcome back to the London Free Press Podcast. Another very busy week in the city of London, but not only the city of London. There was a lot going on this last weekend outside of the city of London. No matter where you are listening to us from, whether it's a podcasting app, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, or if you're watching this at lfpress.com, we want to say thank you so much. Don't forget, you can subscribe. Um, I'm really excited today. This is new blood for me. I've never had the opportunity to catch up with Max Martin, London Free Press reporter. Max, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. That's awesome. I'm excited to chat with you because you wrote a really fantastic piece over at lfpress.com about... I'm going to call this the what's locked down lockdown because for the general public, it's a little confusing to see. We've got new measures, which feels like daily or weekly implemented, but then there's no real repercussions. So there's no scare tactic for enforcement. We got to talk about the golf course that's open in Tilsonburg. How are they getting away with this right now? Because as we know, part of the provincial lockdown, golf courses were told at the same time we were told parks were closing parks reopened that was overturned pretty quickly there was a huge public outcry how are some golf courses able to still run mm-hmm. yeah it's a really good question and i mean we are seeing that most are, are following the rules and the guidelines and are choosing to remain closed we know that outdoor recreation uh it's not just golf this is including tennis courts other kind of organized outdoor sports are closed at least until may 20th as far as we know right now with the current stay-at-home order and um of course we saw that this golf course in tilsonburg the bridges decided to open this past weekend and um you know we've seen these kind of acts of of defiance or pushback against lockdowns and restrictions. We've seen it with restaurants. We've seen it with some other businesses. And um, the golf really struck a chord, I think, with a lot of people this time around. And um, there was definitely a lot of concern of of why was this allowed to run? You know, the, the golf course boasted that they had a fully booked weekend. And so now since Saturday, they've been operating. And as far as we know from the Oxford OPP, nobody, whether an owner or a golfer, has yet to be charged or or ticketed or fined in any way. And so it does raise a really valid question of why are these measures in place if they won't be enforced? And what message does that send to the everyday person to say, well, if they're allowed to do this and they get away with it, what's stopping me from opening up? You know, where do we draw the line? If every golf course in Ontario came together and all said, we're all gonna open, then what would the pushback be? At what level do we kind of start to jump in? And so in talking with some different experts, criminologists, lawyers, uh, you know, advocates for civil liberties, the, the simple answer is it's complicated. You know, it's not as straightforward as just walking up and, and slapping, you know, a padlock on the door or slapping down a ticket. There's a lot that goes into these decisions. And, you know, the biggest thing that's come across is that most police forces, uh, emphasis on most, are opting for education and engagement. So they've taken the approach and the stance and they've been very vocal that 
our first approach will always be to try to educate and to work with anyone who's found contravening these, these lockdown rules. So whether that's, you know, trying to come up with ways that they could do what they want to do or advising them of, of what the consequences are. I think now we're kind of pushing it. We're quite a few days into this and we're, we're still seeing no concrete statement from the Oxford OPP one way or the other. It really does create this message that, yeah, well, we said don't do this, but you know, I guess if you do, it's not that bad. Um, so I think that, you know, the education versus enforcement is one piece. A lot of advocates will say, you know, enforcement should kind of be the last resort. Um, but there's certainly some other layers to it as well. You know, there's the idea of you don't want to make a situation worse, right? Does going in and shutting it down, does it kind of you know, fuel the flames, right? Does ticketing every person there lead to more controversy? You know, we certainly need to acknowledge that the police officers themselves, they need to remain safe. We are still in a public health crisis and a pandemic right now. Um, and so those are all factors. You know, a lot will also say, we've seen this before. We've seen this with, with churches, with protests, where the actual act or event will happen. And it can be a few days or even weeks before charges are laid. So that's just part of police doing their due process. You know, if they want a charge or a ticket to stick, they need to make sure that they've done the proper investigation. And we do allow time in our legal system between when an act occurs and when we can lay charges. So those are all kind of factors that have weighed into this. I mean, the tricky piece is that we still haven't gotten a concrete answer from, you know, the actual police force that's going to oversee that area, um, having kind of come out one way or the other and said, hey, this is what we're doing, um, which does kind of make it tricky. And then, you know, the other layers, we do get other elements in this where we see you know, business owners being fine because a staff member wasn't wearing a mask or, you know, students having a private gathering and bylaw enforcement will come and break that up. And so I think a lot of people are just very confused of where do we draw the line and ultimately who gets to make the final decision? That's fantastic. You threw a lot at me. And I got to say, I, I only kind of have a bone to pick with this. And I'm not a golfer. Just for the record, I golf occasionally, maybe once, twice a summer. And I enjoy it. I don't see, and a lot of people in the public have made this point, I don't see the difference between an adult getting outdoor recreation, so to speak, versus a child going out and playing on a playground. Do you think that it's going to take more than just the police whether it be Premier Doug Ford or somebody even higher stepping in to kind of mitigate and readjust the rules again, because I think that's part of the confusion. The rules are changing constantly. Last year, golfing was okay all summer. This year, all of a sudden, and granted things I would say we're in the thick of it again. It's worse now. Um, what do you think it's going to take to kind of rectify the solution besides just OPP maybe doing their due diligence before laying any charges? Mm -hmm. Certainly, I think you raise a really good point there. And I think that that perhaps is one of the major sticking points of this is the confusion and the question of was the decision to shut down outdoor recreation? Was it based in science and evidence or not? Was this a recommendation from the Ontario Science Table? Or was this what the PC caucus decided to come up with and have other measures? And so we have seen a lot of public health experts come out and say the outdoors is safer. It's not 100%. It's not a magic bullet, but it is safer. And we've definitely had a lot of nuanced discussions about, you know, you are outdoors when you're playing golf. We're still limited to smaller groups. You're staying further apart, ideally. Uh, so all of those factors, I think, do go into this when we do look at, you know, the mental health aspects of people kind of need 
something. We need some release. We need some sort of normalcy in a very not normal time. And I think that's what's struck a nerve with a lot more people with the golf courses is this mixed message of, hey, you say it's so much safer, we should be outside, but now you're saying don't even do that at all. And as you said, well, what's the difference between, you know, I drove by a bunch of playgrounds that seemed very busy this past week. And what is the difference between that and kids and a, and a group of adults? And I think that's where we get a little bit more kind of pushback on this one. And also, I think that's where it becomes a little bit more of a complex legal issue. If you look at this in terms of going down the road and perhaps challenging it, you know, the question come, becomes, did the restriction, is it warranted for what it's trying to do in terms of mitigating spread of a virus in a public health crisis? Was this measure justified? Was it targeted? And some lawyers would say, you know, it's very easy that a golfer could make the defense that, hey, me and, and three other guys out on a golf course was not having a dramatic impact on a public health crisis. Now, that being said, I do think that there have been some experts that have said, you know, the idea is just we're in a stay at home order, stay at home. And is golf, is outdoor recreation, certain things like that, while it's enjoyable, is it essential? You know, what is the likelihood that people are doing it solely within their household bubble? Is there the risk that people are traveling into other health jurisdictions to go to their favorite course? That sort of thing. So I think from that perspective, part of it might be the idea of just, can we keep people at home more and give less of a reason to go out? And does it kind of bleed over into, well, let's you know, we'll meet up and I'll pick you up and we'll go to the golf course and no, oh, might as well stay in the backyard and, you know, have a beer or two. It's, it's hard to say where to draw the line. And I think that this is just speaking to the general confusion that a lot of people have of what can I do and what can I do safely? Give an inch, take a mile, right? Yeah. It yeah. wasn't just the Tilsonburg golf course making headlines this weekend, though. We saw anti-lockdown protests happening, Cernia, Chatham, um, the Church of God in Elmer. Again, there's now been a couple handfuls of fines. Um, let's talk about the, the anti-lockdown protests. First of all, this was interesting to me, the general public. We had two MPs and one MPP now fined for their participation in this. What can you tell me about this? Because I, I watched this unfold on Twitter and I just, mm -hmm. I, I threw my face in my hands and I just shook my head. Well, and so both independents, uh, MP Derek Sloan and MPP Randy Hillier, they've kind of become the champions of this anti-lockdown cause. And even though they are not, you know, one is in the Kingston area, another in Ottawa, they are making their rounds throughout Ontario, a lot in southwestern Ontario. And partly I think that is because, you know, with the Church of God, we've become near Almer a little bit of this kind of hub. These have all become kind of flashpoint areas of, of groups that are very vocal against restrictions and, and these lockdowns that are intended to help curb the spread of this virus. Um, I think that we are seeing a little bit more of a concerted effort, uh, at least specifically out of Elmer, of we're gonna, we're gonna go after the people who are organizing these things. We're gonna go after the people that are behind them. Is it feasible to think that there's the, the resources and the ability to ticket or fine every single person that goes to a protest? No, most legal experts and most criminologists will say no. And that could just make things worse. You know, if you have 20 police officers who are there to keep things safe, but there's 500 people at a protest, they can't be going out and handing a ticket to every single person that was there. 
I think that going for the people who are organizing it certainly at least sends a little bit of a message. Uh, but I guess the question becomes, you know, is that enough? I mean, most people will tell you fines are not a deterrent. And I would say that in, in most of these, if not all of these instances, people are doing this well aware of what the consequence could be. They are aware they're engaging in some form of civil disobedience. That's kind of the point. And so a fine is likely not gonna deter. And I actually think in a lot of these instances, it's kind of galvanizing the cause. It's, it's, you know, it's saying, ha ha, I'm trying to be stifled even more. And so it is very tricky because, you know, protesting is a very important right that we have. You know, we do want to be able to push back and, and it does become a slippery slope. You know, one person I spoke to, a criminologist said, you can create this double standard. What kind of protest do we feel is acceptable? You know, is it okay to have a protest if everyone wears a mask? Is it okay if everyone is socially distancing? We're seeing none of that at these anti-lockdown restrictions. I think we're seeing a point of people huddling as close together as possible, holding hands, giving hugs. It's that show, but it is a little bit of a, of a slippery slope, you know, at what point it's a very tricky law because the only way to protest against it is to break it. And we often don't see that in, in events that we would protest. So um, it, it's another one where there's not a clear answer. I think it's very frustrating for the communities, however, because I think there's a growing sense, as I said earlier, these, these MPs and MPPs, they're not from London. They're not from anywhere in Southwestern Ontario. And so it feels like this kind of group is being imported into smaller towns and communities Stratford, Sarnias, Chatham, Kent, and it makes it seem like those towns are maybe really big flashpoints for this, but we don't actually know how many people from that local community are participating because whenever these happen, we see these massive caravans of people coming in to participate in these rallies. So I don't actually think that these tickets are going to stop anybody. I don't think we're going to see it, it end, but I don't think that there's a simple solution of how do we crack down or how do we halt these? You know, certainly it is a risk when we're getting that many hundred people close together. There's a very big risk and our health system is virtually at the brink of collapse. That's very scary. And I think it's scary for a lot of people in the community to see. And then it does get frustrating when you see that and say, well, this is an elected official who's getting very little repercussion for hanging out with hundreds of other people, but I can't have my brother, my sister, my and my uncle in a backyard for a barbecue, you start to lose some faith, I think, in the rules and why they need to be followed. Yeah, it's a slap in the face for everybody who's missed out on Christmas and two Easter's and Thanksgiving and so on and so forth. Um, I really appreciate your time and input though. Mm -hmm. it's, it's really interesting and you make a good point. I don't think fines are going to do it. I'm not in charge of anything that requires a lot of responsibility and thank goodness for that. I don't know what the next step would be and I don't envy the people who have to make these decisions. We're just gonna have to sit and watch it unfold as scary and as frustrating as that may be. So thank you for all of your insight and thank you for taking time to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. Wish you all the best and I hope to talk again soon. Again, if you're listening and you're enjoying what you're hearing, we are on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, all of the podcast platforms um, over on YouTube and at lfpress.com. We will be back again next Thursday with another episode talking about 
who knows what a lot seems to happen in 24 hours let alone seven days so we will talk again then until then stay well